Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Most of the chemicals being released today, and there's a couple of thousand new ones every year, have not been tested for human safety or for environmental safety. That's Earth Detox author Julian Cribb, and he's on the Postbooks podcast this week with me, Charmaine Chan. I spoke to Julian after watching Johnny Depp's new movie, Minamata, and then found out that Julian and I both own photographer Eugene Smith's book, Minamata, A Warning to the World. It contains that powerful black and white photograph he took 50 years ago, showing a mother cradling her naked, severely deformed daughter in a bath. That attracted worldwide attention to the effects of Minamata disease. I asked Julian to explain what happened in that city in Kyushu, Japan, all those years ago. Minamata was the first of the world's great chemical scandals. Chemical plant discharge was putting mercury into the bay around a Japanese fishing village. Um, The people were eating the fish, which were contaminated with mercury, and they started developing terrible diseases. It poisoned the children in the womb. It poisoned babies, women, men. The chemical company refused to accept responsibility. There were huge rows. There were protests, demonstrations, lawsuits. At the end of the day, the victims got some compensation, but never enough. Many of them were crippled for life. While you mentioned Minamata disease and Agent Orange and Bhopal and the annual Asian brown cloud over South Asia, your book has a broader agenda. Tell us what you're trying to do with Earth Detox. Well, basically, as our population has increased worldwide, our output of chemical emissions has increased vastly, just over the last 30 or 40 years, really. We now produce something of the order of 200, 220 billion tonnes of chemicals every single year. Now, that is about five or six times larger than our climate emissions. So we're spraying these things on the entire planet. They're everywhere to be found wherever you look, in nature, in our cities, in our food, in our water, in the air we breathe. Uh, We are being poisoned every single minute of the day. But nobody seems aware of it. And yet there's a colossal human cost to this. Around about uh, 25,000 people will die today as a result of chemical poisoning worldwide. So it's 10 times worse than climate. It's four times worse than COVID at killing people, this chemical inundation. So something has to be done about this. And the purpose of my book is to draw attention to the scale and the universality of this poisoning. Now, this is your fifth book about mega threats facing humanity. And yet you say Earth Detox was tough to write. Why? 
Well, uh, it's not a pleasant topic. Poisoning is not a pleasant topic to write about. It's, it's not enjoyable. But it has to be told for the same reason that we have to tell the climate story, for the same reason that we have to understand that uh, resources are running out, that animals are going extinct, that the nuclear threat is overwhelming, is worse than it's ever been. These factors have to be understood if we are to prevent them, if we are to do anything about them as a species. Otherwise, they will take us down. Now, I've read that what prompted Silent Spring author Rachel Carson to write her seminal book, published in 1962 about our poisoned world, was a letter written by a friend to a newspaper describing the deaths of birds from the spraying of DDT to kill mosquitoes. Now, Rachel Carson copped a lot of flack from chemical companies for what she wrote, and there were attempts to undermine her credibility. Has that happened to you? Not really. I mean, I, I've been dismissed by the chemical profession, of course. But I'm simply using their data, uh, what their data says. Uh, and it's reached the point now, different from, from when, when she was writing about it, where it cannot be denied. There is so much medical science out there saying that these things are affecting our life, our health, our intelligence, our genes, our sexual preferences, our ability to reproduce. Uh, they're all being poisoned every single moment of the day. Julian points out in his book that an advanced society without chemicals is unimaginable. But he adds that we're accustomed to thinking of pollution in terms of contaminated sites, although from birth we all accumulate poison derived from the things we buy and where we live. I asked him whether we know who the most polluted people in the world are. Uh, no, we don't know because we haven't looked at every single individual on the planet and asked how polluted they are, although that kind of research is starting to get going now. But basically, people who live in big cities where there are, is heavy industry, they are one group that is heavily polluted. People who have uh, lived on farms where a lot of pesticides are used, they're another group that is heavily polluted. People who inhale the toxic uh, result of uh, fossil fuel burning and things like that, that's another group. I mean, maybe if you have lived with Eskimos or somewhere way, way out, you will have a lower level of these things. But nobody on earth is free of them. Nobody. That's the point. They're, they're in our air, our food, our water, and we take them in every minute of the day. And they're mm -hmm. in us, not from birth, but from before birth. When mm -hmm. babies are born nowadays, you can test their blood, and their blood contains a range of toxic chemicals, including pesticides, including dioxins and industrial chemicals, including flame retardants, the ones in your sofa and, and in your carpet and things like that, because the mothers inhale that. And then as soon as the baby is born, it takes in its mother's milk and the mother's milk is contaminated. The World Health Organization has had mother's milk analyzed in over 60 countries and they have always found it to be contaminated. There are statements about chemicals that you hear among them, and this is in your book, is just because a chemical is present doesn't mean it's harmful in the amount present. Tell us why that is disingenuous. Well, basically because you're taking in tens of thousands of different chemicals in the course of a day, and many of them will have the same effect on you. So one particular chemical, you know, let's say the herbicide that was sprayed on your lawn, you're only taking in a very small quantity of that, and that alone may not be enough to poison you, to damage some organ in your body. But in combination 
with the 10,000 other chemicals you took in that day, it may well be causing disastrous health effects. So we just don't know the answers to these things because the science has not been done. That's the big issue. We simply do not know. So the, the chemical industry is pulling the wool over our eyes by saying, oh, look, our chemical in tiny amounts isn't causing any damage. But that ignores the fact that that chemical might be building up in your system over your life. It ignores its interaction with all the other chemicals that you're taking in and the other chemicals that are out there that behave in the same way as that particular chemical. So it's a very disingenuous way of uh, shucking off the responsibility for the universal poisoning that is going on. I'd like to go back to what you said about how chemicals are possibly affecting our intelligence. Are chemicals in the environment making us stupid? We know that humans are losing their IQ. Basically, human IQ is going down at around about three points every decade. Won't you get people asking what IQ tests actually measure? Oh, yes, you do. And you get a lot of debates about IQ. Intelligence is quite difficult to measure. But there are world-accepted standards for measuring these things. And uh, the measurements show a universal trend, uh, declining by about 13 and a half points in IQ since 1975. Now, we don't know what's causing it. What we do know is it's not genetic, okay? Intelligent parents are not breeding stupider children. But we do know that people are getting stupider and that they are finding it more difficult to learn. If you simply apply Occam's razor, what is the most obvious explanation? It is the fact that in our daily lives, we are surrounded by nerve poisons. Nerve poisons or neurotoxins are special chemicals that attack the brain and the central nervous system. And one of their effects is they cause you to be less intelligent. An example of this, a well-known example, is lead. Most countries have taken the lead out of petrol because they realized it was damaging children's brains. They've taken the lead out of tap water and out of paint and things like that because they realized it was poisoning people. Now, there's a whole host of other chemicals which are only just now starting to be identified that cause similar effects and maybe worse effects. On that subject of lead, China evacuated thousands of people from areas around smelting plants in Henan province about 10 years ago. Yes, China has reacted laudably very quickly to to these types of things. But China is also the largest producer of chemicals in the world. Uh, It's taken over from the United States as the world's biggest leading chemical producer. And it uses chemicals to a very large degree, especially in areas like agriculture. You go back 20, 30 years, there were hardly any pesticides used in Chinese agriculture. Today, almost universally, the food is produced with pesticides. So there are new things coming down the track, which are not fully studied and we don't really understand, but there is a warning light there. And China does pop up frequently in your book for those reasons. But one thing I'd like to talk to you about is that section in your book about the Huai River, which divides China into north and south. Now, it's also the dividing line in terms of coal use, air pollution, and life expectancy. What are we talking about here? I mean, how many years of life has toxic air taken from the northern Chinese? 
about two and a half to three years less life is enjoyed by northern Chinese compared to southern Chinese. Now, if you go back a few decades into Chinese history, there was again a very laudable attempt made by the government to make sure that people didn't freeze in wintertime. So they encouraged people in the north of China to burn more coal. So more coal was used to heat people's houses, whether burnt directly in the home or burnt to generate electricity. And the result of that was much heavier air pollution, much heavier both within the house and, of course, outside on the street. They've also launched anti-air pollution campaigns that have seen households in northern China replace those coal-fired heaters with electric or gas-fired units. So things may be improving. Now, I wanted to shift the conversation a bit to agriculture. You mentioned it being one of the largest causes of poisoning, and this is chiefly because of eroded topsoil. How does loss of soil affect us? Well, lost soil creates dust storms, for example. Uh, many people are allergic to it. Soil contains uh, toxic substances, including copper, lead, zinc, cadmium, those sorts of things. So when you inhale a lot of dust, as happens in, for example, mines, it can damage your lungs. Soil erosion is one of the worst aspects of agriculture. But another dimension that is bad is the 5 million tonnes of toxic pesticides that agriculture is spraying on its crops worldwide. And this is what has been blamed for, for killing off the honeybees, for example. And if it's killing the honeybees, it's killing a lot of other things too, and it may be killing human beings. Let's talk about mining, specifically about the fact that by volume, the waste generated is assumed to be many times that of the metals or energy produced. Now, mining of rare earths is booming in China, so we can assume, I guess, that waste generated is also growing. And these rare earth plants typically produce wastewater with radioactive residues, right? Correct, yeah. With rare earths, you're getting a very small amount of mineral for an enormous quantity of soil and rock, which you've processed, you've crushed, and you've cleansed or treated in some way. And that adds up to a massive amount of pollution. So typically speaking, we mine about 17 billion tonnes of all sorts of minerals and energy worldwide every year. But we produce something like 150 billion tonnes of waste as a result of producing those minerals and energy. So there is a colossal pollution problem. It destroys rivers, it blows in the air and it chokes people, it blankets forests, it drowns entire valleys sometimes. Mining is an industry that has basically escaped scot-free from close policing in terms of the pollution that emits. Are you talking just about China or elsewhere, your own country, Australia? talking about the whole world. I'm talking particularly about my, my own country. Every country that mines is producing phenomenal amounts of waste. We've all got a mobile phone. It's got a lithium battery in it. The mining for lithium in the, in the Bolivian Triangle up in the Andes of South America is destroying the whole ecosystem up there that supports the flamingos. The saltwater uh, ecosystem is, almost no longer exists. So there is a huge cost to the mining of these rare earths and rare minerals. It's just not being factored into the price of the goods that we use. Don't you point out in the book that we don't actually know the total amount of waste generated from mining? No, because nobody's ever audited it. You can only estimate it roughly by looking at individual mines and saying how much product do they produce, you know, how much iron or how much coal, and then how much waste is there coming out of the mine at the same time. 
we've now reached the point with the human population starting to peak out, we've reached the point where we don't need any new minerals. We can recycle the ones we've already got. So if we do that, we will get rid of all this waste. That's Earth Detox author Julian Kreb on the Postbooks podcast. And here he tells us we can bring about change with our dollars. The chemical industry itself has been responsible for one of the biggest cover-ups in human history, basically. Just as the, the coal, the oil and the gas industry has misled the public over climate change for more than 50 years, so the petrochemical industry, which produces most of our chemicals, has also been doing a big cover-up operation, trying to convince us that chemicals are good for us. Well, yes, chemicals do have uses, but they are also very, very toxic. And if we don't send an economic signal to the chemical industry to stop producing these toxic substances, they will never get onto green chemistry, which is safe, healthy chemicals. So given what you know and what you know that you don't know, I'd like to ask what the crib household looks like. I mean, what's in your fridge? What do you wear? What kind of furniture do you sit on? How much plastic are you guilty of using? I mean, on an individual level, what can you do? Is there any real way of getting away from man-made chemicals? If you want to ask about my household, well, I try to minimize all of those things, you know. So I, I will try to go for vinegar as opposed to all of these toxic chemicals as a cleaning fluid. Uh, I grow my own vegetables. Uh, I don't like buying them from the supermarket because I, as an agricultural journalist, I know what's in them. So I try is to minimise that. Is the soil that you're growing your vegetables safe? I, I had it tested and it is safe, yes. If, if your house happens to be on an industrial site, then it probably isn't a good idea to grow your uh, veggies in the soil or the, that's there. But I, I grow my vegetables in boxes and they're not using the natural soil that's there. I'm importing the soil. I make my own bread. If you make your own bread, it goes mouldy in about three days, four days. But if you buy it from the supermarket, it doesn't go mouldy for a long, long time. Why is that? The answer is it's been saturated in fungicide. You're eating stuff that's designed to kill fungi, which are some of the toughest life forms on the planet. So there are all these kinds of things, but you can't influence what you breathe. You know, Now, when we get into our motor cars, when we sit on a sofa that's got vinyl on it or something like that, we're inhaling all of those toxic substances. Being Australian, how do you protect yourself from the sun? I mean, I grew up in Australia and slip, slop, slap was part of my sun protection education. But just recently, there was another cancer scare related to sunscreens, and this time it was all about benzene. And I think there was a recall of products. So what do you do? I generally uh, cover myself up um, you know, like a, an Arab in the desert, basically, uh, where you do it with clothing mainly, a little bit of sunscreen. But I'm aware that sunscreen contains toxic chemicals. I've been aware of that for a long, long time. So I try to minimize my use of it. But l let me make the point that people are dying today of melanoma, skin cancer, because we used chemicals to destroy the ozone hole in Antarctica, which allows more ultraviolet radiation to fall on the Earth. And that's why Australians, people in the Southern Hemisphere uh, in particular, are prone to melanoma, a deadly form of skin cancer. So it started with bad chemicals known as CFCs being released, and they destroyed the ozone layer. Since the Montreal Protocol was signed, we've made attempts worldwide to get rid of CFCs, but we've replaced them with chemicals that destroy the climate. So that wasn't such a good, uh, a good thing. But this is an example of what happens. We take away one chemical, 
that, mm. that is seen to have toxic effects like DDT. And then we replace it with another one, which is just as toxic, but it just takes us 20 or 30 years to find out how toxic it is. So that's the problem that, that, that we're seeing. We're replacing toxic things with other toxic things without knowing it. Most of the chemicals being released today, and there's a couple of thousand new ones every year, have not been tested for human safety or for environmental safety. Which is, I guess, why you call personal care products, cosmetics among them, personal harm products. Are you scaremongering? No, I'm not. Uh, have a look at the chemicals in your shampoo. All the things that we slather on ourselves are made from petroleum. They're made from fossil fuels. And a lot of them are carcinogenic or suspected of causing cancer and other types of harm. And we've only just started to get onto this. Now, you will notice that the world's leading cosmetic brands have been very busy getting rid of these chemicals out of their products. Most of them, unfortunately, the cheap cosmetics, uh, they're still absolutely chock full of things that are bad for you. Discerning consumers have put pressure on the world's leading cosmetics brands to stop causing breast cancer and, and other things like that. So, you know, those companies have responded and good on them for responding like that and seeking softer, less harmful chemicals to make people beautiful. Something that is scary is the problem of nanopollution. Again, sunscreens have been implicated, and not just because some are believed to threaten coral and other sea life. I asked Julian Cribb to explain why nanopollutants are such bad news. Well, a nanoparticle is something that is measured in billionths of a meter. It's absolutely tiny. They can pass into your bloodstream and from the bloodstream into the brain or they can pass from a mother's bloodstream into her growing embryo. Once they're loose, they're, they're going to go through you, basically, because they are so small. They will penetrate your skin, which ordinary particles can't do. Your skin is a protection. It's a suit of armor designed to protect you for your whole life against all the nasties, but nanoparticles are so small, they'll go through your skin. So if you're wearing socks with nano silver in them, for example, it'll go into your feet and it'll go thus into your blood supply and thus into your brain. The other thing is that being so small, once you release nanoparticles into the world, you can never call them back. And if they do harm, they will do harm forever. Can we talk about coal? Now, Australia is very hard of hearing when it comes to the problem of coal, but the critique is usually about the fact that burning coal is a major driver of climate change, as you've pointed out. Now, it seems that the climate change lobby doesn't really go hard on the dirty facts about the pollution it causes. The, the, the coal and oil and gas lobby, uh, which is basically 100 companies worldwide worth about $6 trillion, uh, they are making a rational decision to get rich by killing the rest of us. If climate change you know, goes to its extremes, we pursue business as usual, the earth will be uninhabitable by the next century. The petrochemical industry is joined at the hip to these people. Uh, it's essentially the same industry. But you've put your finger on one of the cures. If we get rid of fossil fuels, if we stop using coal, if we stop using oil and we stop using natural gas, basically we'll stop poisoning ourselves as well because most of the poisons, most of the toxins in our environment come from petroleum, from coal or gas. I know you've been looking at the problem of plastics and chemicals in our oceans too, but we're not just talking about marine species ingesting bits of plastic or getting entangled in it, are we? 
one of the problems with plastics is that they carry chemicals around. So they're little taxis, if you like. So when there's a, a bottle floating around out there, toxins can glom onto that bottle and they can go floating around the oceans and end up who knows where. And then, of course, the mouths of big rivers are emptying all that pesticide and industrial waste into the ocean for hundreds of miles around the, uh, the estuary. So you're getting these huge dead zones where just nothing lives, you know, like the mouth of the Mississippi or the mouth of the Yellow River and the Yangtze. They're, they're just dead areas. We've just sterilized the ocean, basically. When they sample the mud in the deepest areas of the ocean, uh, they find man-made industrial chemicals. I mean, for example, and I tell the story of the American uh, marine scientist who was pulling up squid from about three or four kilometers down in the middle of the Atlantic, and he had them analyzed, and they were full of industrial toxins, including flame retardants. How does flame retardant get from, I don't know, your furniture, your carpet, your whatever, into sea creatures? Flame retardant chemicals don't burn because they're immensely tough chemicals. They're essentially extremely you know, hardy. They don't degrade. That was the problem with DDT too, which meant that it kept on doing harm for decades, if not generations. So they replaced it with softer chemicals that would break down quicker. With flame retardants, it's a very hardy chemical. It goes from you know the waste dump into the water table, and from the water table into the New York River, and into the new from the New York River it goes down out into the Atlantic, and these things then start cycling through the ocean food chain, and as you go up the food chain, they concentrate. So the predator animals like squid and octopuses at the top, or swordfish or tuna, are highly toxic to eat because you know they, they've bioconcentrated all of these chemicals, which were Originally, they were very dilute. When they came down the river, they were very dilute. But then they've gone up the food chain and been concentrated. And we humans are bioconcentrators as well because we're at the top of the food chain. So, you know, we're actually making the poisoning worse. So, again, your, your little excuse from the chemical industry that these, oh, it's only a tiny dose and it won't do anybody any harm is utter bullshit because it will bioconcentrate until it does somebody harm. I was quite surprised, after all the alarming information you present, that you seem to be saying at the end of the book that you trust people to do the right thing in cleaning up our planet. You say lawsuits and boycotts won't work, and then you present a 10-point plan as a movement starter. Give me a taste of what you believe we should do. First of all, we need to get together worldwide at the speed of light on the internet, social media and so on, and form a Clean Up the Earth Alliance. We need to have an agreement that we need to cleanse the earth in exactly the same way as we are feeling our way towards an agreement that we should stop damaging the climate. The second thing we need to do is we need to demand a human right not to be poisoned. At the moment, we've all got a right not to be tortured. Chemical poisoning is a form of torture. And we need a specific right just to develop public awareness and awareness in industry on this topic that you should not be killing people with these substances. We need much safer chemicals, cleaner chemicals. We need to understand the scale of the problem. My book is the first attempt to quantify the scale of the human chemical emissions. How do you make all the data that's out there consistent? I mean, everyone's collecting data in different ways, right? How do you create a more coherent scientific approach? Well, we had to do that with the IPCC for carbon and the other greenhouse gases, right? We had to understand how those gases were changing the atmosphere 
and what effect that was having on the climate. And they created models to predict the effect on the climate and so forth. Now, we need to do something very similar with just general chemistry because there's a far larger volume of stuff we're dumping on ourselves. Is part of the solution working more closely with materials engineers, chemical engineers, to come up with solutions? Absolutely it is. There are some chemists who simply don't care what they produce as long as they make money out of it, and there are many chemists who do care a lot, and they want to test the products. The problem is when you're rushing a chemical to market, there isn't the time or the budget to test it for safety. That's why these things get put out there, and you only find out 20 years later that they cause cancer. We need a much better system than the one we've got at the moment. There are lots of chemists working on green chemistry, which is safe, soft chemistry, generally made from natural products such as plants and things like that, rather than petroleum. The problem is there isn't the economic signal from the public at large telling the big companies that produce chemicals that this is what we want. Only when that signal comes will the companies change from producing the dirty toxics to the clean green chemicals. I wanted to ask you about this alliance that you suggest. I guess you're talking about a kind of open source global information database that links to all the databases already in existence? Well, we should have that. Science needs to have a database of all the chemicals on Earth. At the last count, there were 350,000 man-made chemicals, plus all the other ones that we emit naturally. There's all sorts of bodies like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and Worldwide Fund for Nature, Avaaz, uh, GetUp. Together, they have hundreds of millions of members. They're all online talking to one another at the moment. So there is an alliance forming that wants clean food, clean air to breathe in our cities, safe furniture, safe toys for our children instead of toxic toys. The most important thing, really, is, is to link up on social media and talk to other humans. Go to the website of the Breast Cancer Foundation and people like that and find out what they're recommending. There's a group in America called the Environmental Working Group. And if you want to find out which vegetables are the most toxic and which ones are safe to eat, the things that you love best probably are highly toxic and you should avoid them. Is that yes? Strawberries, for example, everybody likes strawberries, but they're grown with masses of fungicide, and fungicide is very toxic stuff. When I was growing up, strawberries went grey and hairy within a couple of days, okay? To stop that happening, strawberries now last for a week, two weeks in the supermarket, and the reason is that they've been saturated in fungicide. Thank you. You know, when I contacted you to set up this interview, you said that nobody wanted to know about chemicals. Well, I think you've helped make it a topic everyone will want to know about. So thank you very much. Thank you, Charmaine. That was Julian Cribb, author of Earth Detox. If you'd like to hear about other books on chemicals recommended by Julian, look for my accompanying article in the South China Morning Post, Post Magazine. You've been listening to the Post Books podcast. <laughs> <laughs>